feel the Lord's presence with us. If we just look at this and be mindful of Hebrews chapter 6, it'll be helpful for us in understanding the purpose behind the teachings that we're going to go through in this symposium. We've already gone through some of these, but today really is a turning point in this process. So our goal is to build, is to see the Lord build his house, his temple in our time. And we know this is not a physical brick or stone building, but this is a house of relationships, a house of God's people. But in order to build that, we have to recognize that it requires a foundation which has been laid by the apostles of the Lord and which no other man can lay. And we also have to understand that undergirding that foundation is a bedrock upon which that foundation is built. And so when Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some say you're this, some say you're that. Then he asked them pointedly, who do you say that I am? And Peter had that anointed confession, and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And upon this rock of who God is, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So this is the rock. This is the basic starting point of any lasting church or kingdom on the face of the earth. Who is Jesus? And that will be our topic this morning. On that come the foundation stones mentioned in Hebrews 6. We're so thankful that the writer mentions in passing what he's not going to lay again. Because if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't know what those foundation stones were. He said, I will not lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. So somehow, those six stones represent the six fundamental truths that we must get right if we would build this house Sure, and according to Plum. Amen. You can ponder that, and now you can. We, we'll, we'll go ahead and transition and talk about this right here. Who is Jesus? Now that that nonsense that I had up there at the beginning. You want to put that back up, Andrew? Um, I asked him to do that just to get everybody wondering what on earth we were going to talk about. Well, that's not it. That's it. There's a big difference. <laughs> so this is, this is a little teaser as to what we're going to get into this morning. This is Clement of Alexandria, an esteemed apologist and theologian. And he says, he gives this, this statement, which if you've been here the last couple days, hopefully it'll be turning your stomach as you read it. But he says, the sacrifice is acceptable to God is unchanging abstraction from the body and its passions. This is the really true piety, and therefore was not philosophy rightly called by Socrates the practice of death. 
For he who does not employ sight in thinking, nor drag in any of the other senses, but with the pure mind itself reaches the objects, he follows the true philosophy. This is why Pythagoras wished with five years of silence, which he recommended to his disciples, that turning away from the senses, they should look upon the deity with the mind alone." We may then apprehend the way of purification by confession and that of contemplation by analysis. Thank you, Brother Dan. Going forward to the first notion, beginning by analysis with the things that underlie it, removing from the body its physical qualities, taking away the dimension of depth, then that of breadth, and addition, that of length. For the point which is left is a monad, so to speak, having position from which if we take away position, we have a monad in thought. If, therefore, or taking away all that pertains to bodies and to things called incorporeal, we cast ourselves into the immensity of Christ and thence by purity go on to the void. We may come somehow to another to understand, to the understanding of the Almighty, knowing not what he is, but what he is not. The first cause is above name and understanding. Clement the Confused. <laughs> Basically, we're going to point out that this mindset is in conflict with this anointing and truth. And it has infiltrated the thinking of Christians to this day. Many of you will have read things from Clement. And perhaps you've even read helpful things, insightful things. I haven't read too many of those, but... Perhaps you've even read things that were stirring or helpful or insightful, just like Plato and Aristotle had such helpful tidbits amidst their pagan philosophy. But as a whole, this approach to God is in conflict with the approach given in this book. This asks us to know the Lord first and foremost in a relationship where we understand instead of overstand, to quote Brother Dan, where we get our position right, and then he begins to speak to our hearts and open our minds, amen, as he creates that synthesis between body, soul, mind, and spirit. Amen? So we've seen this enough, Brother Andrew. We can be done with it. <clears throat> we want to talk today about who Jesus is, and we're going to come back to this. But we want to talk about who Jesus is. And with the first thing I want to ask is, does it matter? Does it matter that we understand what occurred in the incarnation? Does it matter that we understand whether Jesus is a second person in a triune social trinity or whether he is the image of the invisible God? the firstborn of all creation. If I can demonstrate from Scripture that the truth I now present offers you a better understanding and revelation of your Messiah and thus empowers a fuller relationship with him, then this is very vital. If this is merely an argument between your doctrine and mine, then this is completely useless. In John 17, 3 which may prove to be our most quoted passage, and it should be in this conference, Jesus says, this is eternal life, to know the only true God 
and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is a seminal statement that defines salvation. Not in terms of forensic formulas or theological checkboxes, but in terms of a relationship with God. He does not say eternal life is to know about the only true God. He says it is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So if that is salvation, nothing could be more pertinent to this relationship than understanding the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Understanding how God was incarnated in Jesus Christ. Following Jesus' words in verse 3, he goes on to say in verse 25 of this same chapter, John 17, 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. How is it that Jesus has manifested the Father's name to his disciples? Notice he does not say that he has manifested the name of a yet unheard of entity called God the Son. Rather, he is always speaking of being the manifestation of the Father. He has manifested the Father's name. Somehow unity, love, and relationship with God become possible when we properly come to understand his name, his authority, and who he truly is. And that fulfills his prayer. In John 8, 24, he makes this statement. There are, Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, we know that they accepted that Jesus was an existential creature speaking to them, they were not doubting that he was, an ex he was an existential man in the flesh talking to them. So when he says, unless you believe that I am he, he's not talking about unless you believe that I exist. You better know who he is referring to. Because he's not saying, I'm going to just cast you off into your sins. He's saying there's something about the revelation of who he is that is a precedent for victory over your sins. I want to give you this teaser thought. If Jesus was fully man and fully God, which we all presumably believe that he was, if he was the incorporeal incarnation of the invisible spirit of God, then he was the first person to be born of the Father's spirit. The God who is one and the God who is spirit. That spirit came inside a man. And that man, though he had a human will, he nonetheless chose to submit himself entirely to the dictates, anointing, guidance, love of the Spirit that was in him. When we looked upon his flesh, we saw the one in submission. We saw the Son. When we looked 
Through the eyes of the Spirit, we saw the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So in the flesh, he was the Son of God. When we referred to his humanity, we referred to his sonship. But when we referred, when we saw the spirit that animated that man, we saw the one spirit, the one God and Father of all. We saw the Father. Therefore, he was a precedent. Because how can we overcome sin, according to Romans 8.14? What is the only chance of human beings overcoming the power of sin in their lives? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. That's how. So if Jesus was the first one to walk in complete obedience to the Spirit, then understanding how he was one with the Father facilitates our hope of victory over bondage to sin. So when he says, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Because he was the only begotten son, but not the last begotten son. He came to bring many sons to glory. He was the firstborn among many brethren. And we are supposed to be one of those of his brothers who are born of the same spirit. He had the spirit without measure. John tells us unequivocally, he giveth the son the spirit without measure. And we have the spirit with measure. Paul refers to the measure of Christ's gift. So only when we come together with all of our mosaic measures do we see the image of God as the body of Christ in a broken up pattern, albeit, but he was the fullness. He had it without measure. In John, 58, John 8, 58, they challenged Jesus and said, you are not yet 50 years old. Who are you? So he said, unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, just a few verses later in verse 58, they said to him, you're not even 50 years old. Who are you? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The Jews would have understood the significance of the categorical statement, before Abraham was, I am. They knew what he was quoting. This was a phrase that no human being used for themselves. They would not have said, I am this or I am that. Only God had being within himself. And so the one and only true God was called the I am as the origin of life. Amen. And they remembered the Lord's words to Moses. When Moses said, Lord, whom shall I say sent me? And in Exodus 3.14, God replied to Moses saying, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to be remembered for all generations. So when Jesus stands before them and answers their probing question, who are you? He does not qualify it. He does not say, I am a third. He does not say, I am God the Son, a phrase never found in your Bible. He simply says, before Abraham was, I am. 
he, they know he is calling himself Yahweh. They pick up stones to stone him. And he says, for which good work do you stone me? And they say, for a good work we do not stone you, but because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. In fact, he, being God, had made himself out to be man. Hundreds of scriptures in the Old and New Testaments emphatically repeat that God is one. It is one of the most repeated facts and statements throughout the Bible. God is one, God is one, God is one, he is one. It is all through New Testament and it is all through Old Testament. It does not change in the New Testament. For centuries, while those in pagan cultures worshipped countless gods, the Jewish descendants of Abraham were unique in all the world for worshipping one God. One God without qualification. Jewish monotheism may be seen as the cornerstone and starting point of all biblical faith. Jesus brought many adjustments, fulfillments, and clarifications to Jewish theology. But the one aspect of the Hebrew faith that he categorically endorsed was their view of God. If Jesus endorsed the Jewish view of God, and we are not left guessing as to what that view was, did it change in years that followed? When speaking to the woman from another faith, the Samaritan at the well, Christ powerfully states that salvation belongs to the Jews because of their understanding of God. The Amplified Bible renders it like this. You Samaritans do not know what you are worshiping. You worship what you do not comprehend. We do know what we are worshiping. We worship what we have knowledge of and understand. For after all, salvation comes from among the Jews. That's the amplified rendering. I don't know what he's got up there. You, same thing. What a, what a coincidence. <laughs> now, I want, I want to draw attention to this. How many times did Jesus take issue with the Jews? Countless times. How many times did he bring a clarification? Was, does not much of the Gospels and much of the epistles, is, it, is not much of them devoted to adjustments and clarifications from the theology of the Jews to the greater understanding of the New Testament? But there is absolute silence on the Trinity. The word never appears in any Bible, Old or New Testament. There is not a sentence or paragraph devoted to its exposition. Nothing. Oh, you can say, well, it's inferred from this and it's inferred from that. And I would say, no. That's an inference that is seen by people already thoroughly marinated and indoctrinated in the theology. But it's not an inference forced by those who were completely steeped in Jewish monotheism. And in his conversation at the well with a woman from another faith, he says salvation is of the Jews because they know whom they worship. Tying their understanding of God to their salvation. 
in Mark 12, verse 28 through 34, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost? Now I want to ask you, how many times does Jesus compliment a scribe in the New Testament? How many times does he agree with a Pharisee in the New Testament? Not very many. We're going to look at one of the only times in all the New Testament when they have complete unity. The scribe asks him, what commandment is foremost of all? Jesus did not answer, there are no such things. They're all equally valid. He answered this. The foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And that is a definite article that he's using at the end. He even adds that in the Greek, though it be missing in some of the Hebrew. The Lord our Lord is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, or your translation may say wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So when Jesus compliments and agrees with a scribe in a singular event, he says when the man reiterates that there is one God and none beside him, and he says this as a Jew from a Jewish perspective, Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That is not what is taught today. We have changed the definition of the word one. We have obscured the definition of the word one. And we have superimposed something on the Bible, Old and New Testaments, that is categorically antithetical to Judaism and to their current understanding of God. Before going any further, we would do well to remember the words of Jesus and the apostles concerning the strange doctrines that would be introduced. Can I borrow your pamphlet there? Jesus and the apostles warned that strange doctrines were going to be introduced. In the top right-hand corner of your pamphlet, in this blue section, I'll reference you to these scripture references at the back of the section. Mark those and look those up sometime. All the times we are warned that a great confusion, false doctrine, infiltration of philosophy is going to occur in the church. I want to ask you, did that happen? No, did it happen? 
If it hadn't happened, then what was the Reformation for? It most certainly did happen. It obscured Paul's meaning of justification by faith and reintroduced dead works and sacraments and so on and so forth. It made a pompous man the Pope and head of Christ's church instead of the Holy Spirit being the Lord of the church. It introduced one crazy heresy after another. Transubstantiation that says that the the wine and bread actually turns into the visceral body of Jesus himself and therefore requires homage and worship. Your spiritual ancestors were put to death when they would not take off their hats and take a knee on the street as the bread and wine passed by because so-called orthodoxy had taught us that that was actually Jesus. So when people get defensive about our questioning of this doctrine and they reach for this nebulous thing called orthodoxy, we wonder which orthodoxy are they talking about? Because there is no substantial Protestant belief or doctrine that is not a protest against what was once called orthodoxy. We recognize that as the people of God, we are supposed to be on a journey of exodus. That is a journey of restoration. Out of darkness and back into light. Calvin and Luther were great lights John Robinson said when he sent the first Christians over to America in the Mayflower. He said, Calvin and Luther were great and shining lights, but we cannot assume that we could so soon have come from such thick anti-Christian darkness that we have already reached the fullness of God's light. And he charged them to press on, to receive whatever light God would bring forth from his holy word and to test it. And that is what we're proposing now, is that there is a cloud of confusion over this thing that never appears in the Bible called the Trinity. In fairness, I don't judge anybody who believes it, nor do I criticize those who in honesty try to explain it. I feel sorry for them because it is, not, it is inexplicable. But I respect that everybody is trying to worship and honor the Lord. But we are trying to do it through the lens of men like Clement of Alexandria who brought an entirely counter-perspective and different way of knowing. And we will not perceive the Lord through that lens. Amen? Everybody's still with me. There is little consensus about the Trinity. So one of the things I'd like you to look at here, if I can find it myself, let's look at the black section in the middle of the first page at the top. You don't have to read it. I'll read it, but you go back and you can look at it. I just want to gloss over, and I want to give you a preface. This is not a thorough publication. This is not on the scale of most things that we produce around here. This is simply a a teaching help for this seminar. Please don't take it as an authoritative manuscript. If you want that, you can find that in the books at the back, and I'll reference those at the end, and if I don't, remind me. But let's just look at this. I'm just going to read a couple things here. So I want to ask, I just want to put out there, 
are some of the most esteemed theologians of our time aware of the confusion that our current, that the modern popular construct of the Trinity creates? The answer is yes. How many of you would be familiar with Karl Barth? Neo-Orthodox theologian Karl Barth avoided the use of the term persons when referring to the Trinity, stating that the theologian's task would be hopeless if it involved saying what is actually meant by person in the doctrine of the Trinity. He says that their, their task would be hopeless if they had to explain what they actually mean by the term persons. Barth stated, quote, that the idea of three self-consciousness, consciousnesses, or threefold individuality is scarcely possible without falling into tritheism. This is a Trinitarian evangelical theologian that many of you will have heard of. Perhaps the 20th century's most influential Trinitarian theologian, Karl Rayner, am I saying that right? Writes that the difficulty with the term person is one of linguistic usage which exists nowhere else. So he says we're using person to describe the Trinity, but it's a usage that appears and exists nowhere else. Rayner writes further, honesty finally forces us to inquire, not without misgivings, why we still call persons that which remains ultimately of God's threefold personality, since we have to remove from three persons precisely that which at first we thought of constituting a person. Later on, when the more subtle remarks of the theologians have been forgotten, we see that once more we glide probably into a false and basically tritheistic conception. This is a Trinitarian evangelical theologian, widely respected, and he's acknowledging the grave problems with the current construct of the thing that some call Trinity. Rayner continued, the concept, the concept of persons is not used from the start in the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, he calls it that. Neither is the New Testament, neither is it in the New Testament nor among the early fathers. This fact allows us, now I want you to listen to this, this fact allows us to adopt, adopt a critical position and to state that a concept of this kind is at any rate not absolutely constitutive of our knowledge in faith by Father, Son, and Spirit as the one God. The faith can exist without reference to this concept. Shoo! We got off the hook on that one. He is saying that because this appears nowhere in the Bible and because it is not in the early fathers, which we don't even care about that, but we'll just stick with the Bible. He says it is not absolutely constitutive of our faith in Christianity nor our understanding of God as Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. So that's the critical to use his term, that is the critical stance that we're going to take. We accept the Father, we accept the Son, and we accept the Holy Spirit. We do not accept an ontological trinity that makes of these three persons or personalities that relate or have social interaction with each other. We believe this is a dangerous confusion that obscures and limits our access and relationship with God. 
Everybody's still with me. Well, you don't have to agree with me. You don't answer that. To this present day, there is not complete unity among Trinitarians as to what exactly they do or don't believe about the topic. There's not like this perfect explanation that everybody adheres to. There's a lot of different camps within it, and we just quoted two very respected theologians who see some of the problems with this approach. Most Trinitarians claim to believe that God is one in essence, meaning one in kind or nature. But guess what? We're all one in that, man- in that manner because we're all persons, right? We're all people, so we share the same kind. All dogs are one because they're all dogs. All cabbages are one because they're all cabbages. No, they're not. They're one in kind, but they're not one. We have lost the meaning of the word one. Meaning one in kind or in nature, but three distinct persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that they have dialogue and discussion between themselves and that they visit us separately and at different times. Some even claim that there was even, uh, quote, a disagreement in the Godhead at the time of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Penal substitution forces this disagreement, where they would have God the Father saying, I would like to kill them, and I'm simplifying, but you got it, and God the Son saying, I really love them, would you mind killing me instead? And this construct is only possible because of this false understanding given to us from the uh, Greek, the Neoplatonist apologists. So, given how startlingly different the Trinity is from Jewish monotheism, shouldn't we expect to find a paragraph, a line or two, even the word itself, somewhere in Scripture? Shouldn't we find the phrase God the Son in Scripture? I imagine there are some who are a little startled because it is so full, it is so infiltrated Christianity that we hear it all the time. It's nowhere in Scripture because when we speak of His Sonship, we speak of His humanity. And when we speak of His divinity, we refer to the Father. Much is devoted to the change in perspective between works and grace between the Sabbath and the true rest in Christ, between the old sacrifices of animals and the unblemished offering of the Lamb of God, and so on and so forth. But not a single sentence is devoted to explaining this shocking alteration in the believer's view of who God is. Paul is not silent on the other changes that took place between Judaism and Christianity. Who can dispute that? And yet, where is the explaining sentence that would bridge the chasm between one viewpoint and another? Not only is he silent, but what we do have is his categorical endorsement of the Jewish perspective. At, a, at the Lausanne Conference in Switzerland some recent years ago, the uh, keynote speaker made this statement about the Trinity as it pertained to the concern to integrate Jews into the salvation found in Jesus Christ. And I want to quote this. This is a conference about 
how to bring Jews into salvation in Jesus Christ. This is at the Lausanne Conference in Switzerland. This is the keynote speaker. Um, this is an evangelical group. This is the, the head of that group. I want to quote him now. The traditional Jewish attitude is still that Jews who believe in the triune God are idolaters. It is characteristic of, the main, of mainstream Messianic Jews in recent years that they do not use the term Trinity in their statements of faith. It simply feels too un-Jewish. But it does not necessarily imply that the doctrine of Messiah or the Holy Spirit has been weakened. The point is that they want to use biblical language and biblical categories, not terms found only outside the Bible. Now, this Trinitarian has just stated our position exactly. When we began in New York and New Jersey and throughout our history, we are thankful to say that our numbers have been, uh, our, our, our community has been full of Jewish people from the very beginning. It is, it is part of the heartbeat and ethos of this community. The songs that we sing, the history that we share, it's just part of us. Amen. In this room today, many of those sitting around you have Jewish or Israeli background. If you, if you have a Jewish or Israeli background, would you raise your hand in this room? So probably 10% of those in this room, and that doesn't represent the fullness of the church. This is just a small sampling, but probably 10% are Jewish in this room. And if in the last days God is going to return to the Jewish people and take those branches that were cut off and graft them back in, then is it not high time we remove whatever stumbling blocks the enemy has placed, knowing that Christ and his sacrifice is enough of a stumbling block to the flesh? Let us not lay a greater barrier in the way of those who would come to salvation through Jesus Christ. The history of the Trinity. The first several hundred years of the New Testament church history records nothing even vaguely resembling the classical Trinitarian doctrine. Oxford University's Archibald Robertson spoke somewhat derisively of the sub-apostolic church as simply holding the divinity of Christ and the deity of God, quote-unquote, and therefore using language which may be called naively monarchian. Monarchian is, is the term for our position, it is, it is the view that God is one, one God, and that he has manifested himself in, in, a, in three basic modes, as Father in creation, Son in redemption, and Holy Spirit in regeneration. But he is one God, one personal God, and he is spirit, and he lived inside of Jesus. Amen. This was true of the early church in both East and West. University of Notre Dame's John Howard Yoder similarly noted that, quote, the church was rigid, the early church was rigidly, loyally, and Jewishly monotheistic. These early Christians were clearly Jews who saw God not as a philosophical absolute or a unique metaphysical being, but simply as the God of their story, the Yahweh of the Old Testament. So these are two Trinitarian historians who say that the early church was rigidly 
loyally Jewish and monotheistic. They were not Trinitarian. They were monarchian. As predicted by Jesus, Peter, and Paul, Christianity underwent a paganization in the early centuries after the first church. Insufficiently converted Greek philosophers and thinkers began to reimagine and redefine the profound truths of the Bible. They were guided not by the inspiration of the Spirit alone, and thus their writings were not Scripture, but mere human speculation. I want to say right here that as we get into some of this, I want to say straight up, we're going to quote some, some guys, and their, their comments on God should startle you. But I also want to say we can't represent everything that these men ever did in their lives in a couple quotes. Justin Martyr has said things that moved me almost to tears. Even Origen said things that made sense. Clement, I don't remember any, but they prob he probably did. Gregory of Nyssa, despite being a, an anti-Semite, um, I'm sure he had some thoughtful thing to say. But I, we're, our point is not to say these men were monsters, nor is it to engender hatred. It is to engender pity that they were in darkness and they sowed the seeds and laid the foundation of a doctrine whose subscribers today would find no agreement with the mindset that motivated its original antecedents. There is not an evangelical minister that you can find who would agree with Justin Martyr's view of God. None. You'd be disfellowshipped from the church if you said some of the things. Well, they don't do that anymore. But you would be, you would be considered an outcast if you said some of the things that he said about God. But Justin Martyr and Origen, these are the earliest these are the men who first started laying the groundwork of what later became codified as the Trinity some 150 years afterwards. Perhaps the first to suggest that God was plural in the second century was an apologist and Greek philosopher by the name of Justin Martyr. He believed originally not in a Trinity, but that God was two. Maybe we call that a twinity? I don't know. This wasn't due to anything he found in Scripture, but merely claimed, he claimed that no one with any sense could believe that the supreme God himself could become incarnate. They had a Neoplatonist view that, that supremacy and sovereignty precluded interaction with mortals like us. This came from Plato. Plato believed, Aristotle believed in the unknowable knower. That's how he referred to the divine. Plato, did I get that right? And the unmoved mover. I'm sorry, unknowable knower and the unmoved mover. So Plato believed, and he was correct. He worshiped a God without knowing, like those at the Areopagus. Plato believed that there was some God out there who was casting the shapes of morality and objective truth in the world, like we see shadows on a wall. But he believed that because he didn't know this God, that this God could not be known. And that notion remained in Greek thinking, and it infiltrated the church as these Greek-trained philosophers began to reinterpret the Scripture. Now, in Plato's day, we can applaud the fact that he believed that 
Values did not come, they were not derived from human beings as a, as a function of expediency. We can appreciate that he believed that there was some entity out there who was casting these shadows in the world. But he was a pagan. If we want to get into the personal life of Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates, there are some major problems. But in the first, second, third centuries, these Greek thinkers who saw their pedigree as being Greek, they wanted to give as much validity to their ancestry as the Jews were receiving from the prophets in the story of the Old Testament. And so they began to superimpose and reimagine and give them a place that God had not given them and that reality had not given them. Therefore, a dangerous leaven was introduced. Now, I'm going to read to you quotes from a man who is the origin, who is the starting point of this doctrine. And you're not going to agree with him. And yet you probably accept the outcome of the nonsense he started. In keeping with the roots in his Greek rationalism, he viewed Christ merely as a preexistent absolute, as the reason or logos in that sense. The beautiful opening verses of John's gospel declare, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But this was written by a Jew to Jews. This was the Word, this word logos, translated the Hebrew word, what would be the Hebrew for word? In Davar. See, I didn't want to say it wrong. I was going to wait for him to say it. Davar, is that correct? So this is what the Septuagint uses to translate Devar over and over from the Old Testament. So when John says, in the beginning was the Word, he's speaking of this creative agency of God's nature. He's speaking of this aspect of his power called his Word, whereby he speaks things into existence and upholds all things. Correct? In the beginning was the Word. But the Greeks had a different definition for Logos. To them, the word logos described anything that was logical. And therefore, if God was logos, then whatever was logical was God. And so they said, well, if in the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God, then let's look at our most logical philosophers and acknowledge that they were Christians. They just didn't know it. Now, that's actually what they said. Let's get into this a little bit. <clears throat> Oxford's Chadwick said Justin Martyr could hardly be more positive and generous toward Greek philosophy. He, more than anyone else, constructed the platform upon which later influential theologians Clement and Origen stood. Justin Martyr wrote that, quote, Plato spoke well in proportion to, the, to his share, to the share he had in the Logos Spermatikos, and that is the seed of the, of the word, the seed of the Logos. To Justin... The Greek philosopher possessed the same seed of reason that motivated the Hebrew prophets. Church historian Philip Schaff writes that for Justin, this is a quote, the Logos is the preexistent absolute personal reason and Christ is the embodiment of it. The Logos incarnate, whatever is rational is Christian and whatever is Christian is rational. 
Pretty much what we learned yesterday from Brother Dan, right? The Logos endowed all men with reason and freedom, which are not lost by the fall. He scattered seeds of truth before his incarnation. This is still a quote. Not only among the Jews, but also among the Greeks and barbarians, especially among philosophers and poets who are the prophets of the heathen. Still a quote. Those who who lived reasonably and virtuously in obedience to this preparatory light were Christians in fact, though not in name while those who lived unreasonably were Christless and enemies of Christ. Now get this before we end the quote here. Socrates was a Christian as well as Abraham, though he didn't know it. Oh, okay. Cambridge's patristic scholar uh, G.W.H. Lamp writes, Justin saw the Logos who is Christ as none other than the reason in which all men participate. So through the perversion of this meaningful word in the beautiful verses of John, they began to impute to the Greek thinkers and philosophers a standing before God that the Bible gives us no grounds for giving them. Do you follow me still? Now Tertullian was the first to popularize the term persons. And he did not use it as we use it today. Alistair McGrath says the following. Tertullian, writing in the third century, used the word person with a different meaning. The word person originally derives from the Latin word persona, meaning an actor's face mask, and by extension, the role which he takes in a play. By stating that there were three persons but only one God, Tertullian was asserting that all three major roles in the great drama of human redemption were played by one and the same God. So when we talk about God as one person, we mean one person in the modern sense of the word. And when we talk about God as three persons, we mean three persons in the ancient sense of the word. Confusing these two senses of the word, person inevitably leads to the idea that God is actually a committee. Now that's a Trinitarian supposedly speaking to us there. But I couldn't disagree with anything he said. He is saying that Tertullian used person as persona. Okay? We all have multiple personas. I have a persona with my kids when they climb on my lap to tell me goodnight and I tickle them and I'm their daddy that is different than the persona that I have right now as I stand before you. Praise God, right? (laughs) And I have a persona when I interact with strangers in the business world that is different than the one I have when I stand before you now. I relate to some as a father and I relate to my parents as a son, and I relate to you as a brother, and to this one as a friend, and to that one as a stranger. These are personas. They may even be offices that all describe critical functions of my life. Okay, I might, I might have an office, a position, that is to say, in business, and I might have an office in ministry, and I might have a full-time function as a father, and a husband. But this does not necessitate three separate beings. Amen? 
But the Greeks believed that God was unknowable. Then they saw God very relatable in the person of Jesus. They saw God loving us, speaking to us, healing us, forgiving us, giving his human life for us on the cross. And they said, okay, well now, if God is unknowable, then this must not be the Almighty. Everybody still with me? So, but do you believe that God is unknowable? The early founders of the Trinity said, if anyone says God has a name, he raves in hopeless madness. Do you believe that? No. But we can't accept the fruit of a tree that is bad, that is flawed at its core. Gradually, as the ontological trinity began to take the place of the economic trinity, an economic trinity is what I just described. One entity fulfilling three basic offices. That's an economic trinity, and I would accede to that. Amen? But as the ontological trinity, ontological means in being, of, of very being, right? There are, he is not three in his being. He is three in his function. He is three in his manifestation or office. <clears throat> As the ontological trinity began to take the place of the economic trinity, the lapsed philosophical mindset of the apologist removed the reality of God from human life by first distancing God's authority, consistent with the view of the ancient Greeks that God was distant, unknowable, and then shrouding it in mystery and finally dividing it co-equally. Now, if you want to limit authority... I don't know that you could improve on what was done at the founding of this nation when they created a trinity. Now think about it. The founders of, of, of the American system of government wanted to prevent sovereignty. Prevent sovereignty. And so they divided power into three co-equal branches in order to slow totalitarianism and prevent sovereignty. We call that the tripartite system, right? Equal branches of government. Now, if we're wanting to prevent God's sovereignty, if we're wanting to limit his divine sovereignty, then it makes sense to divide him into three confusing co-equal branches. But if we're wanting him to be everything, king of kings and lord of lords, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, we need, to remain, we need to maintain the idea that he is one and that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Was there an anti-Jewish bias at the time when the Trinity was codified as doctrine? Clement of Alexandria, a famed church leader who lived in Tertullian's day, was a radical anti-Semite. He desperately wanted to save the church from any connection to its Jewish roots, especially the ancient belief in one God. This esteemed, esteemed Trinitarian theologian Gregory of Nyssa reflected the growing anti-Semitism of his days within the theological circles. For Gregory to believe that God was one in personality, and I quote, was to be brought under Judaism. He stated, quote, the Christian who combats polytheism 
has need of care, lest in contending against Hellenism, he should fall unconsciously into Judaism. In other words, he believed that Hellenism was a good blend between monotheism and polytheism. And a, and a scare tactic, and he used a scare tactic to keep people from arguing against him by threatening to slur them as a Jew. Gregory believed that, quote, the three persons in one nature formula would, quote, avoid equally the absurdity of Jewish monotheism and that of heathen polytheism. Speaking fondly of the Trinity, Gregory gloated, the Jewish dogma is destroyed by this mystery of the faith. And I ask you, is that consistent with what Jesus said to the woman at the well? The Jewish dogma is destroyed with this mystery of the faith. So we see that far from building on the revelation of oneness that the Jewish faith was built upon and which Jesus endorsed and propagated, these fathers of the Trinity desired through this doctrine and in their pride and pagan culture to destroy the understanding of God that the Jews held, an understanding that was foundational or the very root of true Christianity. When Constantine became emperor in Rome in 313 AD, he embraced Christianity in hopes that he could hijack the church's structure for his own political aspirations. He was disappointed to discover that the Christians were quarreling among themselves over God's nature. He saw that his political power could never be completely united so long as there were theological differences. Therefore, he determined to call a council of the entire church and force a decision on the nature of God that would, quote, unify the church and stabilize the empire. Therefore, the outcome of this Trinitarian debate would be solely political. It would, in fact, have nothing to do with theology. The council would settle the issue, and he would enforce its decision with the brute force of the state. The unbaptized Constantine, covered in gold gems and barbarous attire, was the honor honorary president of the first council of Nicaea, the highest assembly of the church. This was not parallel to the council we talked about last night when James spoke about David's tabernacle. This was a monster sitting at the head of a council, thinking himself to be the 13th apostle and having a sarcophagus carved alongside the others, which he never found, in order to make himself appear the 13th apostle. He refused to be baptized until he was about to die because he wanted to commit as much sin as possible before having it all washed away. He never repented, never confessed faith in Jesus. He adopted Christianity for expediency. He saw it as a unifying agent for his empire. You love the Council of Nicaea, but who presided over the Council of Nicaea? And if you want to detect the Trinity from that, it contradicts itself in one statement. At, this, at one of these councils, they made a decision. I believe it was the Council of Nicaea. In lending his support, Constantine made a statement that identified his attitude toward the Jews. And so I want to ask, based on Gregory, based on Clement, based on Constantine, who presided over this council, 
I want to ask, was there an anti-Jewish bias? That's the question we're asking. Here's what Constantine said in conclusion of the decision to separate Easter from Passover. Listen. It appeared an unholy thing that in the celebration of this most holy feast, we should follow the practice of the Jews. I apologize to our Jewish brothers and sisters. We're going to quote from a monster in order to put away his doctrines. Okay? It appeared an unholy thing to celebrate to practice, excuse, it appeared an unholy thing that in the celebration of this most holy feast, we should follow the practice of the Jews. This is Constantine speaking. Who have impiously defiled their hands with enormous sin and are therefore deservedly afflicted with blindness of soul. Let us then have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd, for we have received from our Savior a different way. Therefore, this irregularity must be corrected in order that we may no more have anything in common with those parasites and murders of our Lord. No single point in common with the perjury of the Jews. And yet you love a doctrine that he solidified at the Council of Nicaea. It was through that lens that a decision was made and from thenceforth it is estimated 3,000 people lost their lives in violent clashes between proponents of rival factions within the Trinitarian debate. Thousands of Christians slaughtered each other over their failure to understand the nature of, of the Godhead while a pagan state moved in to take the place of the sovereign spirit of God as the guarding force of the church. And so it was that the Trinity became orthodox, In 2 Corinthians 5.18, he says, All things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. I want you to hear the singular entity in this divine equation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. When Jesus came into the world, mankind was separated from God. The whole reason that Jesus came to earth was to accomplish reconciliation between two estranged parties, God and mankind. But this atonement, this at-one-ment, is not supposed to be limited to just Jesus and the Father. This reconciliation and oneness is supposed to unite God and his regenerate people. For those seeking reconciliation, we must first understand how Jesus was reconciled with and one with the Father. Their oneness is our pattern for oneness, that they may be one as we are one, he prayed of us. To understand clearly the nature of the incarnation is to receive the hope and pattern for reconciliation. God's original contract in Eden was with man, when he man made man ruler over all the works of his hands and gave man dominion over the whole world. Every animal, every creature on land and sea but man welcomed the devil into the estate of this world which God had, his, had entrusted to his domain. 
God gave man the controlling rights of the world. You have made him a little lower than the angels and made him ruler over all the works of your hands. But man brought in a different spirit and made himself the slave of the king of terror. So Jesus calls him the God of this world, the prince of this world, the ruler of this world. God could not forcibly take back what he had freely given because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. He does not snatch them having given them. Therefore, it had to be a man that would reverse the damage which mankind had caused. Only a man could destroy the works of the devil and reopen a channel for God into this world of judgment by completely surrendering his flesh to the spirit residing within him and making the right choice that the first Adam had failed to make. The New Testament scriptures initially speak more of Christ's humanity than of his divinity. They want us to know that he was born of a woman, born under the law, that he is the son of man, Jesus of Nazareth, the descendant of David. And when scripture refers to Christ as the bridge between God and man, it emphasizes his humanity yet again. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He was a human being. He was made like us in every way. He was born of a woman, born under the law. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Why is it important to emphasize his humanity? Because then we see that his indwelling divinity is our hope of reconciliation. If a human being can be completely one with God, then you can be filled with God's spirit. You can be one with God. Jesus had every choice that each one of us had, has. He had every temptation that we have. He had every opportunity for sin that we have. But he died daily to those choices that would have elevated his flesh above the will of God. He lived in complete obedience. He lived for the life of not my will, but your will be done. Therefore, he could die a death of not my will, but your will be done. In the same way, God pitched his glory inside the tabernacle of Jesus of Nazareth. He now pitches his glory inside the tabernacle of his people. There's something of God that wants to be born in us, even as, there was, even as God was born in Jesus of Nazareth. If we see who Jesus really is, we don't have to die in our sins because he is the precedent. He is the captain, the pioneer of our salvation. He is the firstborn of many brethren and not the last. The spirit of Jesus. Jews and Muslims emphasize that God is spirit and therefore cannot be a man. This is what baffles them about our belief that Jesus was both a man and God. But to understand the union between God who is spirit and the humanity of Christ is to catch a glimpse of our own path to oneness and reconciliation with God, that they may be one as we are one. Jesus said categorically, God is spirit. God is spirit in his conversation with the woman at the well. Furthermore, 
he tells this Samaritan woman that salvation is exclusive to the Jews because of their perspective and understanding of God. Nothing could be more clear. He is endorsing the Jewish perspective of God. So in Jesus' mind, the incarnation did not substantially alter the ancient Judaic understanding of God. It only revealed, explained, and manifested it. If you are a Jew and you say, I can't accept that he is God because he was a man, he endorsed your perspective. But listen, in John 1.18 it says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son of God in the bosom of the Father. He has revealed him, explained him, manifested him, made him known, the Amplified says. No one has ever seen God because you can't see a spirit, but you could see Jesus. This was the big miracle. Invisible spirit came inside of visible flesh, and the flesh was completely subject to the spirit. So we were able to fully understand God for the first time. Incarnation is simply a matter of degree and extent. For the Jews and Muslims who say, I don't know if I can accept that God became a man. Well, your Bible teaches that God would put his spirit in man. Isaiah says, I will give them my spirit. Jeremiah says, I will give them a new spirit. Ezekiel says, I will give them a new heart and a spirit. Joel says, I will pour out my spirit on them. So if the Almighty can choose to put his spirit in any measure, in any one, can he not choose how much he gives to his Messiah, his anointed one? Can he not choose to take up residency and give all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form? Consider the words of Isaiah written 800 years before Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Ezekiel, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will do a new thing. I will put my spirit in them and cause them to walk in my statutes. This is not a New Testament phenomenon. It is as ancient as the anointing that rested on Moses such that he had to hide his radiant face with a veil because it was too glorious for the people to gaze upon. The question of incarnation is merely an issue of degree. If the Holy Spirit can come inside of a man or upon a man on any level, can God not choose to come with all his fullness inside of the one from Galilee, Jesus Christ? Incarnation is possible because anointing is possible. Incarnation is a question of degree. It is a question of totality. It is a question of extent. Jesus was the Son of God, and he was a human being. He was the Father because that Spirit, which is God, lived inside of him without measure. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created. And now he speaks of that word, that word that was once non-incorporal, that became incorporal in Christ, that took on the tabernacle of flesh when he came inside of a baby, born of a woman, born under the law. He said to Joseph, heard the angel say to him about Mary, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. Not a third, but all the fullness. And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 2.9 says, In Jesus, in him, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We wonder what was left for the Spirit and the Father. No, we don't, because the Father is Spirit, and that Spirit dwelt in the Son without measure. He was all the fullness of the Father. It's like a light bulb, like these that are shining right now. Someone says, well, if, if he was in Christ, then was he no longer in heaven? No, the Bible teaches us that the heavens cannot sustain him, nor the earth contain him. That God is everywhere in all places. But he shifted his source, his outshining throne, to the human being who walked the streets of Galilee. It pleased the Father. <clears throat> he says the Son is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, the outshining of his essence. Fullness, we use fullness in a qualitative sense, not a quantitative sense. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The unity of the spirit and the man. Let's look at Isaiah 9, verse 6 through 7. Let's look at this carefully. For to us a child is born. Who is he speaking of? To us a son is given. Can we doubt that he's speaking of Jesus? One of the most quoted messianic prophecies. A child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Who will be called? A child is born, a son is given. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. If your view of Jesus does not allow you to comfortably call him the Wonderful Counselor, which refers to the Spirit, and Mighty God and Everlasting Father, you have the wrong view. You have a Greek-influenced, twisted view because the Hebrew prophet said, a child is born, a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And then Jesus says this, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to us. Is that what it says? No. Look at the pronoun. What does it say? It's singular pronoun. 
all authority. Because these, these titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that represents all the authority right there. That's all the offices and functions of God right there. But over here he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. And the Greek makes it clear that is a singular name. Even these crazy apologists knew that. The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Keep, could you give us the rest of it? What is he, how does he finish it? And lo, paralleling this, we are with you always. All authority has been given to me, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is Matthew's version of the Great Commission. Let's pull up Luke 24, 49, or thereabouts. It might be 46, but pull up Luke. And how does Luke summarize this Great Commission given by Jesus, quoted by Matthew? And he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. In his name. So what is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost? When... when when Luther split from the Catholic Church, the foremost uh, cardinal, Cochleus, had a debate with him. I believe it was their only debate. And in that debate, Luther put forth his doctrine of solo scripturo. And he said, the Pope has no power to change the scripture. And Cochleus said, oh, oh, yes, he does, because the first Pope did. Luther was befuddled by that and asked him what he meant. Cochleus said, Peter was the first pope. And Jesus had commanded to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And Peter could disobey and change it to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And poor Luther didn't say, no, silly. He obeyed it. He didn't parrot it. He understood that the Son's name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He understood what Jesus was emphasizing when he referred to those functions. He was speaking of his name. And so in Acts, how did they baptize? They said, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. In Acts 4, they're brought before the Sanhedrin and they're commanded to speak no more in this man's name. Do you remember? In verse 12 of Acts 4, he says, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other, man, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the incarnation of the Father. He is the Spirit. He is the Son. In Hebrews 1 and 1, it says, God spoke long ago to the fathers 
through the prophets in many portions and many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having begun, become so much better than the angels to the extent that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Thank you, Jesus. In John eight nineteen, Jesus says, so they were, it says, so they were saying to them, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. In John 10, 30, he said, I and the father are one. He never speaks of being one with some entity called the divine son. Because when we refer to his sonship, we refer to his humanity. And when we refer to his divinity, we speak of the one and only father. Only by knowing Jesus can we know the father. Can we see the father? Can we come to the father? Jesus is the father become visible to man. In John 8, 25 and also verse 27, it says, then they were saying to them, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning that they did not recognize that he was speaking to them about his father? In John 10, 37, he says, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe in the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. He doesn't say a divine son is in me. The son is always speaking of being in submission to the Father. <coughs> Jesus is the Holy Spirit. There is one body, one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. How many divine spirits are there? Ephesians 4.4, 4, there is one body, one spirit. How many spirits are there? In Matthew 1.20, it says, the child who has been conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 15.45, it says, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, he says, now the Lord, referring to Jesus, is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. In 1 Peter 1.10, it says, And to this salvation the prophets who prophesied of the grace that, would come, that was to come made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. So at the beginning of the sentence, he calls it the Spirit of Christ that was working in them. At the end, he says it was by the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of all that I said. In Matthew 10, 19, he says, but when, but when they hand you over 
Do not worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. For in that very hour, it will be given you. For it is not you who speaks, but it is the spirit of your father who is speaking in you. But look at the parallels in Mark and in Matthew. In Matthew, he quotes it as saying, I will give you what to say. In, 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 I mean, the Spirit will give you what to say, the Spirit of your Father. In Mark, he says, the Father will give you what to say. And in Luke, he says, I will give you what to say. So who's going to be given it? Well, there's only one entity called by a son in one dimension, by a father in another dimension, and by the Holy Spirit in another function. But it's one entity. The Scriptures aren't broken. They didn't all get it wrong, or one get it wrong, and two, two get it wrong, and one right. They're all speaking of the same thing. In Acts 16, listen to how it makes the Spirit of Jesus interchangeable with the Holy Spirit. They passed through the region of Galatia and Phrygia after being forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go in, and the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. How many of you know this one in Romans 8? Listen to how he interchangeably refers to the Spirit of Jesus and the Spirit of God. Romans 8.8, 8, listen to what he says. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, you see how he speaks of it interchangeably? Because how many spirits are there? He does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. It's all one spirit. There's only one. The name that God gave Moses in Exodus was Yahweh. And he revealed himself in progressive revelation of his nature. At times, he called himself Yahweh Yira, our provider. And other times, Yahweh Rebekah, our healer. And other times, Yahweh Nisi, our banner. Then Yahweh Shalom, our peace. Then Yahweh Rohi, our shepherd. Then Yahweh Tzakainu, our righteousness. Yahweh Shema, our presence, God's presence. But in Zechariah, he says, In that day, Yahweh will be king over all, and his name the only name. He says, in Zechariah prophesied, not only that the great king will come lowly and riding on the donkey, but also on that day there will be one Yahweh and his name, the only name. Did you hear that? So God revealed himself in progressive manifestations. The name Yahweh means I am, but it means I will become whatever, by implication, I will become whatever I will become. And the name Jesus is the combination of two words, Yahweh and Hosea, merged into one and shortened, Yahshua, like Joshua, but with a Y, okay? Yahshua, amen. And it means Yahweh becomes salvation. He is not a new entity, a never-before-heard-of entity called God the Son. He is Yahweh become visible. He is Yahweh, fully manifested, revealed. He is Yahweh, becomes salvation. In Isaiah 63, 11, we are told that God caused his glorious arm to go with Moses. Yet we also know there arose one like unto Moses, Jesus. 
He came in the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that God would bear his arm and show himself fully. The bearing of God's arm represents God revealing himself in raw human form. Scripture repeatedly tells us that Jesus inherited a more excellent name than the name of his father. In this sense, did he become, I'm sorry, the name of his father, not then the name of his father. <laughs> Jesus inherited a more excellent name, the name of his father. In this sense, did he become heir of all things. This glorified man lived under the mighty right hand of God and then assumed his place on the throne of God, the place of all power and inherited dominion and glory. In this unfolding process, the fullest and most complete revelation of Yahweh entered time and space, declaring his forever name to be Yahweh Hoshea, or shortened Yeshua, which is Yahweh becomes salvation. Jesus is the name of the Son. At that time, you will have a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the name of the Father. John 17, keep them by your name, Holy Father, the name which thou hast given to me. Jesus is the name of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26, the, the Father will send the Holy Spirit in my name. Jesus is the name of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. He is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That's why every time they obeyed his commission in Acts 2, in Acts 8, in Acts 19, in Acts 4, in Ephesians 1.21, in Revelations 3, there's only one name. He will write on them a new name, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem. Amen. Because the new Jerusalem is his body, which is called by his name. Thank you, Jesus.